Welcome to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. We are informally debating issues that concern Zionists about life, culture, and politics in Israel. I'm today's moderator, Michael Unterberg, here with our debaters for today, Kalev Bendor and Amy Weinrib. Our topic for today is going to be the Israeli military draft, which, based on public opinion polls that we're seeing lately, about half of Israelis think that we should cancel and just have a strictly volunteer army like many democracies do today. And our debaters are going to take both sides of that issue. Should we continue the draft or should we not continue the draft? Kalev, you get to go first on this one. Would you like to take your opening statement? So I would like to start with a quote by uh, Amir Eshel, who is a previous uh, commander of the Air Force, who said that the IDF isn't really a people's army. It's half of the people's army. And I think perhaps Amy will, will touch on this as well. Historically, the IDF was a real unifying force amongst many of Israel's disparate communities. But it's not really working anymore as a people's army. Previous President Rivlin said a few years ago, he came up with this idea of four tribes, uh, a secular tribe, an ultra-Orthodox tribe, a national religious tribe, and an Arab tribe. And educationally, that distinction probably misses out a whole chunk of, of the Israeli population. But but just, just for, for um, argument's sake, the, the Haredi tribe is, is not going to the army. The Arab tribe is primarily exempted from the army. And so at best, we are, we are now approaching a, a large, large proportion of Israel's population who are not being drafted. Just, just some statistics. The draft age of, of young men in 2019 was 69%. That's down from 75% in 1990. But if you add in the ultra-Orthodox, who are around 12% of Israel's Jewish population, if we add Arab Israelis, who are exempt, it's about half. It's about half of 18-year-olds who are currently serving in the army. And so that really lends the question as to what extent the IDF is anymore the people's army. I think in addition to that, the whole concept of warfare is changing. And actually the perceived threat of what we're facing is also changing. And, and it's interesting to compare with other countries that, that used to have a draft Denmark, Switzerland, Belgium, etc., that after the Cold War ends, the popularity of that compulsory draft goes down because the perception changes. I'm not in any way suggesting that Israel does not face major threats. It does, although I think you, you could argue that the classic warfare of tanks v. tanks, whether the fear was that Saddam Hussein's Iraq is going to go through Jordan and invade by the Jordan Valley, or whether there's going to be this big tank battle on the Golan between Israel and, and Syria, those things are no longer relevant. So we've got fewer people serving. We've got a perception of the change. We've got a major gap between what the law says should be happening and what happens in practice in terms of people going. And we've also got generational changes and a rise in individualism, which means that even amongst the secular tribe, We've got fewer people who are eager to go. This is not to say that I have any fantastic solutions, but I think what was before is, is fraying at the edges. In fact, it's not even at the edges. It's, it's very much fraying towards the centre. 
And we need to significantly rethink what we do with this idea of a gius, of, of a universal draft, because A, it's, it's never been universal, and B, it's, in, it's increasingly unfair to the people who do serve. And so what we really need is some sort of major rethink. Okay. Amy? Wow, Caleb. I, th- I think like you're just going in the wrong direction here. The, so that there needs to be a rethink is an important statement that I agree with. But you're imagining that because it's heading in this direction that we need to continue in this direction. And I just don't think that's true. So I have a few things to say in response. And the first one is, is increasingly in countries, I mean, we're, we're in a political moment globally, I would argue, that countries are becoming more polarized, divided, divisive, that there's schisms within a voting population where people can't see eye to eye or or talk across factions or losses. And one of the advantages that Israel has, even though we're facing some of these things too as a country, is that we have this opportunity to bring diverse people together and serve from anywhere between a couple of years to close to three years and beyond in what is the last melting pot available. And from people that I've talked to from all over the world, and most of the students that I interact with now are around draft age or just after, say that one of the most important things for them arriving to Israel or being Israeli is the draft, even if they confronted mental health problems, even if there were parts that they hated, that this was the most important part of their lives in meeting other Israelis or becoming an Israeli. To take that away at this point in history, I think would be tragic. That's one of my major pushbacks against what you've said. And if you read um, people who are starting to think about, especially in the U.S., how to bring people together, imagining some kind of required national service, not necessarily military, but national. Another point that you seem to have overlooked or seems quite outdated to me, actually, is that the Arab population is largely not involved. Okay, that's true statistically, but what you've omitted is that there's increasing levels of Arab Christians and Muslims who are volunteering to serve. And, you know, it's not a perfect system, but one of the motivations is greater incorporation into Israeli society, which is probably something Israel needs deeply, and that the benefits after serving in terms of connections or networking or potexia is not what a lot of Arab Israelis of of any religious background get to experience. It's a structural exclusion, and this is the easiest way to do it. And they're asking to do it. In fact, Christians, Arab Christians now receive voluntary draft cards in the mail in the same way that uh, Jewish Israelis do. And for many families, it's a sense of inclusion and recognition, not across the board, of course. And the last thing I want to say in terms of militarization is sometimes I think that the perception of the IDF is more important than what the IDF is actually doing. The IDF is a major political talking point and tool, but a lot of people do not understand the range of jobs um, or roles that are available. Some of them are not directly military at all. It could be doing a podcast for the army. It could be an environmental cleanup. It could be volunteering in a school or in Magandavida Dom as a paramedic. And I think that talking about military drafts and talking about a required national service does need to be part of the conversation, but that there should be more of it rather than less of it. Also, 
A trend that I'm worried about is that there's starting to become a ethnoclass division in who is serving. While there was a time where there was an Ashkenazi elite that was sort of the, the most likely group to serve, these are becoming the sort of more posh, I'd rather have a café au fouch and have a mental health problem that I document, which is becoming easier and easier to do, than actually join people in protecting the country. And it's becoming a more peripheral, more Mizrahi, more working class job. And that doesn't seem like a direction we want to go. The men, the number of people who are claiming mental health as a way to get out of the army is increasing. And this is something that we need to address. There are increasing mental health cases, but that doesn't mean that you don't serve. That means that there's other ways of serving. There are kids with, I shouldn't say kids, but young soldiers with Down syndrome who are incorporated really, really successfully, sometimes in canine units, sometimes in other units, but that it's a source of pride, it's a source of unity, and it's a source of collective national culture that we don't want to erase anytime soon. I also think that uh, in terms of New Olim, honestly, it's the fastest way to learn Hebrew. And this is a structural problem that I see with New Olim who don't serve, sometimes don't gain that immersive language experience. You did sort of a basic study of Olim who did serve and didn't. The army is what makes them Israeli. Okay, so I have a question for Amy and a question for Kalev. Kalev, you were arguing that the military that we're familiar with is outmoded. And it is sort of one of these truisms of military thinking that generals are always fighting the last war and not recognizing what's changed for today. But aren't you possibly fighting the future war when you make a statement like that? In other words, saying that we're not going to be fighting tank battles is also a classic blunder that military thinkers make of like, oh, we're on the next frontier. Sometimes you fight enemies who are not on the next frontier and they're still fighting with the old methods. And so lowering Israel's guard to traditional modern 20, 21st century combat, doesn't that imperil the nation? And unless you have Israeli generals saying we have way too many people in the army, we just got to stop drafting. Can you clarify that argument in a way that satisfies me? Because that's my concern with what you said. Well, I can try and clarify the argument. Whether mm -hmm. it will satisfy you is, <laughs> is uh, more up to you than up to me, potentially. Mm -hmm. I mean, one one thing I would, I would emphasize about what something Amy said is that I think potentially doing podcasts in the army is, is, is right up there in terms of being, super, you know, podcasts, are super important things to be doing. I think we can all agree on that. <laughs> uh, I'm still, I'm still not sure actually if the if the diagnosis of the problem you disagree with or the the recommendations. Actually, not even sure that I gave specific recommendations. It was more about the way it is working at the moment. It is. Well, I, I have a question for Amy's prescription coming up. Okay, I think my main point is that what was has ceased to work that, you know, there is a rise of Arabs who are serving. There's also a slight rise, or there was certainly, in ultra-Orthodox serving. But these populations are rising. There is a rise of the number of people who either, amongst the secular, aren't serving for, for whatever reason, amongst the ultra-Orthodox who aren't serving, amongst the Arab population who aren't serving. And so we need to rethink what is going on with Tzavah Ha'am, the, the, the People's Army. And I think something particularly interesting that, that Amy talked about is there, there can potentially be a distinction between military service and national mm -hmm. service. And That's going to be my question, yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I, don't want to, I don't want to step on your toes. No, go ahead. There, there are solutions such as there's an organization called Panima, which I think Amir Eshel is involved in, and also Gabi Ashkenazi, a former chief of staff, and Shai Piron, who's a former education minister. 
And their idea is everyone serves in some way. National service, yeah. A draft to national service. The army gets first dibs, which I also think is probably important because if we get rid of the draft, there's a lot of super smart people who would very much be useful for the army, who if they had the choice, would would potentially just want to go straight straight to university. I think it's important that the army does get... And possibly higher reward, higher compensation if you choose that as your path to national service. Absolutely. But I think the idea of reimagining military service as national service and saying everyone in some way, whether that is... Yeah, that's what I want to ask Whether that's learning Torah, but also volunteering at Zaka, whether that is being part of the ambulance or the police services, whether that is some sort of volunteering. But I think the classic model is collapsing and needs to be rethought. I think if you look at Israel's focus in recent years, the focus on intelligence, etc., is is far higher than, than classic warfare. That doesn't mean that warfare is disappearing. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean we don't need people in tanks. But it is one of the components that leads, that should, in my opinion, lead us to a rethinking of the classic model, which is fraying. I don't think it's as significant as potentially a rise in individualism. I don't think it's as significant as the fact that we are getting to around 50% of the population who aren't serving. You would agree with me that the army military thinkers should be thinking about what they they militarily conclude the numbers need to be, and then we'll talk about the social implications. I think that the first thing, the the, the biggest priority should be hearing from the army as as to what they want. Yes. So then we agree. Okay, great. Amy, uh, and to sort of amplify basically what, what Kalev was, was pointing out, what's wrong with, instead of having it be a military draft and the people's army, you would have a national, universal national service draft with a quota for what the military needs to function with, again, perhaps advanced rewards either during or afterwards for, for, for being certainly in combat, but even being in choosing the military option as opposed to something that's a little less difficult. But that could be anywhere, as you were saying, in the world of whether it's in education or in, in healthcare, or there's a million things that everybody could do. And that wouldn't that solve all of your issues of feeling a sense of national belonging and national bonding? I think it would, but I also think that it's ignoring maybe an elephant in the room that is, we are living in sort of an anti-military, anti-nationalistic age mm-hmm. where um, talking about bearing arms or attacks, talking about enemies is very unpopular. And there's an international perception that it's bordering on war criminals almost no matter what you do. I don't want there to be a complete shift in focus away from military needs, no matter what form they take. And the fact that Israel does have enemies and is surrounded in many analyses by enemies, we are also an enemy of other close-by states. Hopefully that's changing with the Abraham Accords, which is something that we need to keep in mind in this conversation in terms of regional shifts of needs for immediate military action, but it's not at that state yet. So I'm not contradicting that we could open this up, but I think shaping the the conversation towards a softer, kinder national service is not the only point. Well, not, not in the sense of making it softer and kinder, but in the sense of that clearly, as Kalev is arguing, there are there's a huge chunk of the population that is just not eligible or required to do military service, but still should be brought in and feel that full Israeli experience and become as Israelified, whether they're Jewish or Arab or whatever they are. Um, it, it, exactly to your argument, yeah. isn't there a way? And So it's not a question of making it softer. It's a question of making it more 
inclusive and putting more people on task. Okay, so more inclusive is important, but I also think that people have some of the strongest bonding experiences and some of the more meaningful years in combat. And that's something that people don't always want to talk about. And there is a stratification Mm -hmm. um, in terms of what's elite, what's respected, what allows you the greatest number of networks afterwards. And I think that being aware of that and keeping that in mind, if we do build a different type of military structure, is going to be important. And really looking at and being realistic about who gets in what units. Mm-hmm. So right now, Shimonima Time, the, the elite military intelligence unit, is by far the biggest unit in the army, mm-hmm. by a long shot. And, and isn't that partially based on military need, but also based on career path, that if you have that in your resume? It is. It is. And I, but I mean, I think the military need is interesting, but also, and I want to mention this explicitly, it's still dominated by Ashkenazi men. Mm. And that's something that the military doesn't really talk about that much publicly. So I think if we're going on this revamping conversation, we need to be really cognizant of the flows in terms of ethnicity, level of religiosity, family income, core versus periphery, male versus female, and be aware of the, be aware of those flows. And that equal opportunity isn't just saying we're going to have national service, but have some really precise record keeping about the way that Israeli citizens are becoming part of the military as well. So if I understand the positions correctly, it sounds like you're both agreeing that changes need to be made. Amy, you're arguing that that means within the draft concept, improvements need to be made. And Kalev, you're saying let's open it beyond the draft concept into other ways of looking at it. Is that a fair representation of the two positions? I think I'm more convinced by the need that it, the, the current system is broken than any potential solution. Mm. I don't think I'm, I'm, okay. I'm closed on that at all, but I think that the, the current model has ceased to work. And we, we had another discussion about, about the Supreme Court, about the mm-hmm. override law. We could well be looking in the next few months that the fact that Haredim don't serve will no longer be able to be struck down by the fact that that is that is unequal that there'll be a new basic law mm-hmm. saying that learning torah is also of supreme importance so i i think we are heading for for a necessary re- rethink where that rethink goes i'm not sure but i think the current model so then, is you're arguing that it's so broken that we need to be very open in looking at what we're going to do and amy you're arguing, I'm arguing there's that so much not, of it that works yes yeah, so much of it that, that works and that we should with the focus on that Exactly. And that it that it should be creative solutions that are oriented towards military goals, not public perception and not swayed by what some people would say is a more coddled generation of young people who want to avoid this kind of hardship and don't and don't want to think it's individualistic. But it's also saying, I don't really want to give that anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think that is destructive. So even in if Western society in general, not just in Israel. Western society in general, but it's something that Israel, I think, has as a more collectivist society has been able to avoid so mm-hmm. far. And I'm not sure that um, it's doing such a good job anymore with the level of exemptions, which is being watched. Mm-hmm. But the level of exemptions ha- was really skyrocketing for a while. So broken? No, I think it's something that does work and can be improved. So I'm going to turn to you, Amy, closing statement. My closing statement is that we have something to be really proud of that has functioned for a very long time, and it's part of Israeli national culture. It shouldn't be dismantled. If we dismantle or radically change the military operations and draft process, we will lose part of what it means to be Israel and what it means to be Israeli. Khalif? 
so I, I don't necessarily disagree with that. The challenge of that is there are two major groups who have never historically either served or had to serve, even though there are some volunteers. And so what we're left with is, is, is the challenges of the secular and the national religious. And my worry is the growing Arab and Haredi population at a certain stage, we won't be able to, we won't be able to maintain what, what I agree with you has been so important historically. I think that your diagnoses are somewhat different. I think there is one prescription that would work for both of you, which is expanding national service that you would both would agree, but you're disagreeing about the nature of the problem and how open we should be to solutions, I think, alternatives, because Amy, you're very firm that we have to keep. And I don't think we should look to other countries for a solution. Our mm -hmm. situation is geographically, politically, and culturally specific. Mm -hmm. That's a strong point. Guys, that was great. I, I, I felt, I don't know who I agree with at this point, because you both made very compelling cases. So I'm going to have to digest this one. And we'll let listeners let us know what they think. So thank you so much, Amy. Thank you so much, Kalev. Enjoy, everyone. Have a good day. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Israel Conversation by the Massah Leadership and Impact Center. In everything we do, we hope to connect our fellows to Israel as home, that our Massah Fellows will feel at home in Israel and understand more about Israel and all of its diversity. We connect our Fellows to Jewish peoplehood, to feel an affinity for Judaism and a sense of belonging to the Jewish people. And the connection is active and meaningful in their lives. And finally, personal development. And in the case of this podcast, our goal is that you'll be able to use the tools and learning for reflection and future development in conversations about Israel and Judaism. If this episode is meaningful to you, please subscribe and share with somebody that you think it will be meaningful to.